Hello, and welcome to Actively Speaking. I'm your host, Steve Blyberg. Join us each episode as we discuss current issues concerning capital markets and portfolio management from the perspective of an active manager. Hi, welcome to another episode of Actively Speaking. Today, I'm going to be talking about behavioral finance. Behavioral finance is a subject that uh, I've really been very interested in for over 30 years. It really dates back to my time in business school 35 years ago uh, in the course of writing my thesis at business school. I needed to find some research on how people uh, understand and perceive probability and chance. And uh, what I found was it, was it was very hard to find such research. Of course, this was in the pre-internet days, so finding things was a little harder, but uh, it didn't seem like there had been a lot of work done. As it turns out, there, there had been work done in the 1970s uh, by two gentlemen, two Israeli psychologists, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And if the name Daniel Kahneman rings a bell, it's because he won a Nobel Prize in economics about 15 years ago, even though he's a psychologist, not an economist. So that was really how things got started. It was a work that uh, Kahneman and Tversky did in the 70s on Basically, the subject was, how do people make decisions under uncertainty? The uh, application of this to finance was not immediately apparent to them. They were not economists or finance people. But uh, I would say the other person, the person who probably did the most to pull this work into the realm of finance was Richard Thaler, uh, who also won a Nobel Prize in economics uh, just a couple of years ago. Books I would recommend by these authors, Tversky unfortunately died young. Uh, before Kahneman got the Nobel Prize, and they don't award Nobel Prizes posthumously, so he did not share in it. But Kahneman, I, the book I would recommend is Thinking Fast and Slow from uh, probably six, seven years ago. And uh, then a few years after that, uh, Richard Thaler wrote his own memoir called Misbehaving, uh, both very good books I would recommend to get a good introduction to this field. So what is behavioral finance? Well, it's really uh, a reaction, you could say, to classical economics, Classical economics tended to view people as, quote, rational wealth maximizers, meaning that in making decisions about finance and risk, we are rational. We only take you know, facts into account. We don't let emotions or biases get in the way. And we have this single goal of maximizing our wealth. So we are rational wealth maximizers. And it's, you know, it's obviously a simplifying assumption. And that's what you know, a lot of fields, like particularly economics, are filled with. Uh, practitioners have to make simplifying assumptions because the world is very complex, but it's not clear that the complexity is always necessary to, to make good predictions about how the world is going to behave or how people are going to behave. So classically, uh, economics has, has used this assumption that people are rational wealth maximizers. And the question really is, is that too simplifying an assumption? Is it, is it so inaccurate that the predictions that economics renders about how people will behave are, are inaccurate. And you know, many, there are many defenders of that view of, of people as rational wealth maximizers to this day who would say that it does actually enable us to make good enough predictions about how people would behave. But there is you know, the other view that behavioral economists would make, uh, propose that in fact, uh, the, some, those assumptions are, are too oversimplifying and they do not allow uh, economists to make good predictions about how people will behave. What behavioral finance does is incorporate psychology and an understanding of how people actually perceive risk, how they make decisions. And so a lot of behavioral finance research has focused on documenting, identifying and documenting so-called cognitive biases that people have. 
Well, what are these cognitive biases? I'm going to talk about a few of them just as examples. They're fascinating in and of themselves. Uh, but then I'll, after I get done with that, I will try to give a, uh, an overview of what's the more important um, broad message we can take from, from identifying all these biases. Are they just a collection of funny things, funny anomalies in the way people behave, or do they have a broader meaning when considered as a whole? Okay, let's start with something that's called anchoring. And it's a very, it's, it's almost hard to believe when you read the, uh, some of the research that's gone into documenting this one. Well, what does anchoring mean? It, it means that you latch on, you anchor on some number, even if that number has no relevance to whatever it is you're trying to make a decision about. So for example, this is to me one of the, the funniest of these kinds of studies. They rigged up, uh, and I think this was a Kahneman and Tversky study. They took a, uh, like a big wheel, you know, imagine like a roulette wheel or something that you could spin around uh, on, a, on a post and, um, you know, it's, not, it's sort of like a wheel of fortune. But they had rigged this thing so that it would only land on either the number 10 or the number 65. And as a person was participating in this project, in this research, they would spin the wheel and it would come up every time, either 10 or 65. And then they would be asked this question, how many African countries are there in the United Nations? And rather remarkably, there was a significant difference in the answers given by the people for whom the roulette wheel had stopped on 10 versus the people for whom it had stopped on 65. And as you might expect, the people for whom it landed on 65 tended to give a much higher number than the people for whom it had landed on 10. Now, obviously, where that wheel landed has no bearing on how many African countries there are in the UN. It's just a, it's just a fact. It's a number. And yet the people would latch on to that number they had just seen because it was a subject where they did not know the answer. Uh, and so they just kind of, uh, in their head, well, I had just seen this number 10. And, and so that tended to make them come up with a lower number than people for whom it came up on 65. It's kind of amazing. So how does this relate to investing? Well, suppose you bought a stock at $25 a share when you bought it. And now it goes down and it's at 20 or it's at 15. Well, a lot of people uh, who, who paid 25, they sort of anchor onto that number and they're convinced that it's still worth 25, even though the market has clearly now come to a different conclusion about what the company is worth. And they will stubbornly cling to the idea that this stock is worth $25 because that's what I paid for it. And I'm not selling it till it gets back to 25. Whereas a person who had, say, bought it a few years earlier when it was at 10, to that person, the, the number 25 is not particularly meaningful. Obviously, to that person, 10 is the more meaningful number. So they're anchored on 10. The person who bought it at 25 is anchored on 25. If it's at 20, uh, they're going to have very different attitudes towards selling the stock or, or deciding what it's worth. Uh, so that's, that's anchoring. The second bias I want to talk about is something called mental accounting. And uh, I always make this terrible joke when I talk about this one, that if you're old enough to remember, there's an entertainer who used to appear on The Tonight Show all the time years ago named The Amazing Kreskin. And he was you know, supposedly a mind reader. Obviously, he was just an entertainer. But when I hear the expression mental accounting, to me, it brings up this image of Kreskin sitting there and saying, uh, yes, I, you know, I know exactly what your accounts receivable are going to be next year. Uh, he's, he's a mentalist who focuses on accounting. OK, I told you it was a bad joke. Uh, but what mental accounting really refers to is that we, even though money is fungible, meaning, you know, any one dollar can be substituted in any other, for any other dollar, and when you, you have a pool of assets, uh, you know, in your personal finance, and it's, it's all your money, and 
yet we tend to separate it in our minds into different accounts, hence the mental accounting. The real key f- aspect of this phenomenon is that our willingness to take risk varies depending on which mental account we think the money uh, is coming from. Uh, one of the standard examples to illustrate this is, uh, and again, I'm dating myself, but if you remember the game show, uh, Let's Make a Deal, where Monty Hall would walk down the, the steps in the audience and he'd pick somebody sitting on the aisle and he'd say, here you go, here's $200. And, uh, you know, would you now, do you want to keep the $200 or you can, you know, look, see what's behind curtain number one, that kind of thing. The point is when, some, when we're in a situation like that where this money, you've suddenly uh, you know, come into this money that you don't think you really did anything to earn, you feel like, well, that's not really my money. Uh, another good example of this is in casinos when people say they're playing blackjack. And if they are up a few hundred dollars uh, on the night since they started playing, the common expression you'll hear people use is, well, I'm playing with the house's money. It's not the house's money. It's your money. You're free to get up and leave any time you want. And any money you have at that point is your money. And yet uh, people don't think of it that way. And the, the whole concept of I'm playing with the house's money, it just carries the, the connotation, the way people say it, of that's eh, not my money. I can take more risk with it because it's, if I lose, what does it matter? It's not really my money. And so uh, that, that's a common perception, a uh, common way people think about things. Uh, and you see it more broadly in terms of investing when people do things like they, put to, uh, they set up an account that will be specifically for, say, their children's college education or will set up an account that is specifically to save for a home. And they will not necessarily keep a, an overall picture of what does my total portfolio look like and you can often end up with sort of weird allocations uh, that don't necessarily make sense when you put it all together. The truth is it's all your money. It's all one big portfolio. Yes, you have to fund these different needs, but it's not necessarily the most productive thing to sort of fund them all separately and have them all on a standalone basis where you don't really take into account what's going on elsewhere within your overall portfolio. Uh, a third bias that's uh, really fascinating is confirmation bias. And what this refers to is that when we are evaluating some hypothesis, we often frame it in our minds in terms of what evidence do I need to to look for to show that this is true? And as opposed to also thinking, well, what evidence would I need to look for that, that would, what evidence would disprove this hypothesis? Because it's often different sets of evidence. There might be some information you could find that would tend to make the hypothesis seem to be true, and yet there might also be other kinds of information out there that would prove it false. And yet we tend not to look for that. We tend to focus. If, if you have a view in your head to relate it to investing, I like this company. This is a great company or this product they have is going to do really well. You're more likely to look for evidence like, well, gee, have, have they done market surveys of consumers saying that they want a product like this? And you're not likely to look for evidence that, well, maybe some other company is coming up with some other technology that's going to make this product obsolete next year. You're not really focused on that because that's not going to prove your hypothesis true, so you're not looking for it. Um, and there's, there's a lot of evidence for this that we, we only look for information that confirms our, uh, what, we, what we're looking to prove as opposed to actively seeking information to disprove things. And so we often hold on to views that are just incorrect because we're not even aware of where to look. We're not even thinking about what kind of evidence should I be looking for that would, that would potentially disprove it. And then the last of the four that I want to talk about is something called regret minimization. Uh, this relates in a bit uh, to the first one I was talking about, the anchoring 
I used the example of a stock that one person had bought at 10 and another person had bought at 25 and now it's at 20. And I was talking about initially about how they, the, the anchoring that goes on in, in people's minds based on the price they paid. And, but that example is also relevant for this regret minimization because if the company, you know, so now, that, as I say, the stock is now trading at 20 and the company announces that you know, something bad has happened and the outlook is, is not that great going forward. Are the two investors equally likely to sell the stock, the one who paid 10 and the one who paid 25? The evidence seems to indicate that, no, the person who paid 25 is, is going to be less inclined to sell. It's partly the anchoring of the 25, but also it's the idea that if you sell at 20, you're, well, or the stock would probably trade even lower than 20 if they just made some, uh, an announcement of some bad news. But you're going to regret that loss. If, if you sell it at a loss, you will regret it. And regret is a powerful emotion that we don't like feeling. And people seek to avoid regret. Uh, that's one of the things that drives our decision making. And so the person who bought, bought it at 25 is likely to say, eh, if I sell, uh, I'm, I will, it'll nag at me for a long time that I lost money in the stock. I'll just wait till it gets back to 25, again, the anchoring, and then I can get out and, and won't regret it. Whereas the person who paid 10 uh, can say, hey, you know, yes, I had the chance to sell 25 and too bad I missed it. But hey, even if I can sell at 18, I'm still, I came out, I made an $8 profit on this stock. That's great. I'm not going to regret it and I'll move on. To me, there's a, there's a broader significance to uh, regret minimization. One of the criticisms of behavioral finance is that it's nothing more than a collection of these kind of amusing uh, anomalies and amusing biases that we have, and that it doesn't amount to anything more than that. And when we talk about regret minimization, I think that is where it rises to a slightly higher level. Because if you remember, I mentioned at the beginning, classical economics assumes that people are just wealth maximizers. That's all we care about. And we have this sort of one monomaniacal goal of just maximizing our wealth. And one of the contributions that behavioral finance makes at a, at a more theoretical level is to say, well, that's actually not our only motivation as, as humans, that we are simultaneously trying to maximize wealth, but also trying to minimize regret. And they don't always lead to the same decision. If you're faced with a, a choice of investments, there's one that may have, you know, from a modern portfolio theory point of view, might have a slightly higher expected return, might even have a lower level of volatility, uh, but you might prefer uh, a, another investment that has a slightly lower expected return, and even if it has a little bit more volatility, if that first investment with the higher return also had the, the, the chance, you know, maybe it's only a one in 10 chance, but that you'll lose you know, three quarters of your money in that investment. Uh, even if the overall average expected return is a little bit higher than the second investment, maybe the second investment, the worst case scenario is you lose 10%. Uh, and people, a lot of people might prefer that just because they know that if they lose 75%, they're going to regret that quite. It's going to be very painful. Uh, so they'd rather give up a little return in exchange for a more limited downside. Uh, and that's, that has to do with regret minimization. And, and again, that's, it's important because it shows that we're not just wealth maximizers. So what does all this mean? Let's try to put this together. Step back from looking at these biases one-on-one uh, -on -one and say, uh, what, what overarching picture can we draw or what lessons can we learn from this? So there's two things I, I think we should focus on. Number one, it's kind of at a theoretical level. Uh, I do think that where all of this leads is to a, a conclusion that the simplifying assumption that classical economics, of which modern portfolio theory I think is a derivative, that the assumption that it makes that people are rational wealth maximizers is pretty inaccurate. 
and that this does lead to sort of poor conclusions about how people should behave or do behave. And in particular, and this is something I talked about in, a, in an episode, er, an earlier episode about the limits of theory white paper, uh, a key assumption in modern portfolio theory, uh, or I should say a key conclusion, excuse me, uh, is that we should all hold an index fund. You know, it's a, that's where the argument for passive management comes out of modern portfolio theory. But the, the key assumption that that relies on is that we all agree on how to define risk and how to measure risk. And that there's one number, it's the standard deviation of, a, of an asset's returns. That's what constitutes risk. That's an objective number. It doesn't matter who takes the measurement. You're going to get the same result. Uh, and we can all, if you go with that assumption, well, then the logic of MPT uh, shows you how there's one portfolio that's optimal. And if it's optimal, and we all agree, of course, in this world that it's optimal, we'd all want to hold it. And then it's a logical uh, deduction from there to say, well, there's only one portfolio we can all hold at the same time, and it's the market. Uh, because if any one of us chooses to overweight a particular stock, somebody else, by definition, has to be underweight in their portfolio. So uh, the only way we can all have the same portfolio is to just hold a little miniature slice of the market in, uh, you know, pro rata of every, everything out there. Uh, well, that doesn't really hold up if you take the lesson from behavioral finance that, in fact, we all perceive risk differently uh, because of these various biases, which are present to a greater or less extent in various people, or they just have a different influence on each person. So it's, it's really not true that we all agree on the riskiness of a particular stock, a particular portfolio. And if that's the case, you can't really conclude that there's one portfolio that we would all agree is the optimal portfolio, in which case, as I say, the whole sort of logical argument for indexing doesn't really hold up. So that's kind of a theoretical conclusion and obviously a, a nice conclusion for those of us in the active management world uh, to say that, you know, there, there really isn't such a strong uh, theoretical case for, for indexing because it relies on a faulty assumptions about how we perceive risk. But I think a more practical lesson from all of this is something uh, we should all take to heart about how we invest personally. And I like to make reference to the story in the Odyssey, Homer's epic, the Odyssey, about the sirens. There's an island that Odysseus and his men pass by on their ship where these mythical creatures called the sirens live. And they sing a very beautiful song. And this is where we get the expression siren song. And that expression means something that lures you to doom because, in fact, the island where the sirens live is very rocky and the shore is rocky and and all these cliffs, and there's no way to, to really land safely. If you try to land on the island, your ship gets destroyed and, and you all you know, drown. So Odysseus wants to hear the song of the sirens, but he knows uh, he's heard you know, tales uh, of what happens when you try to land on this island. <clears throat> so he comes up with an ingenious solution to this, which is he, first he has his men, the sailors on his ship, put wax in their ears so they will not be able to hear the song and, and want to... Uh, land the ship so that they could keep listening. And he has them tie him to the mast of the ship so that he's not free to do uh, anything. You know, he won't be able to go steer the ship towards the island. So this way he'll be able to hear the song of the sirens uh, without uh, trying to land the ship and his men will not be able to hear it anyway, so they won't try to land the ship. So as investors, we need to learn from the experience of Odysseus and, and take a lesson from what he did. So we know that we're human. We know we're subject to emotional reactions, to biases in the way we interpret information. And what that means is uh, we tend to overreact positively when markets go up. 
We overreact negatively when they go down. There's you know, been evidence that shows that the average actual experienced return of investors in mutual funds tends to be lower than the average return of the funds themselves. And it has to do with when they put money in and when they take money out. People tend to put money in after the market's already gone up a lot. And then they take money out after the market's uh, dropped sharply. And so they, um, you know, they miss out on the rebounds and they've got too much in at the top. Uh, you need to commit to a long-term disciplined strategy, say a, say a particular asset allocation maybe, and say, I'm going to stick with this, and I'm going to rebalance uh, when it strays too far from that. So when the markets go up, rather than if equity markets go up relative to bond markets, rather than put more money in, I'll actually take money out and go back to my what my set allocation is supposed to be. And similarly, if markets have gone down, I'm, you commit yourself to saying, hmm, if, if equity markets have gone down relative to bond markets, and so I'm now underweight relative to my uh, desired asset allocation, I need to actually put money back into equities. That is a smart way to invest um, because it's it's that allocation of the long term that's going to drive your your return. So basically, uh, you need to understand your weaknesses, understand your behavioral uh, biases and uh, emotional reactions, and take steps in advance to prevent those things from hurting you, just like Odysseus did, and uh, preventing himself from shipwrecking, uh, wrecking his own ship. So that's, I think, the, the overarching lesson of behavioral finance. It can, it can turn us into better investors if we recognize our weaknesses and take steps to protect ourselves from them. Hope you've enjoyed listening to this, and we'll talk to you again soon. Remember to subscribe to Actively Speaking on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. You can find all of our previous episodes and additional content on our website, www.eipny.com. The information contained in this podcast is distributed for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment product. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but not guaranteed. The information contained in this podcast is accurate as of the date submitted, but is subject to change. Any performance information referenced in this podcast represents past performance and is not indicative of future returns. Any projections, targets, or estimates in this podcast are forward-looking statements and are based on EPIC's research, analysis, and assumptions made by EPIC. There can be no assurances that such projections, targets, or estimates will occur and the actual results may materially be different. Other events which were not taken into account in formulating such projections, targets, or estimates may occur and may significantly affect the returns or performance of any accounts and or funds managed by EPIC. To the extent this podcast contains information about specific companies or securities, including whether they are profitable or not, they are being provided as a means of illustrating our investment thesis. Past references to specific companies or securities are not a complete list of securities selected for clients, and not all securities selected for clients in the past year were profitable. You cannot invest directly in an index, which also does not take into account trading commissions and costs.